great to be back. Thanks for having me. Um, let me share with you a little story, which I found amusing but really appropriate for this morning. There was a world-renowned philosopher who held multiple PhDs, and had a personal, he had a personal chauffeur who would uh, take him, drive him to all of his teaching engagements. And the chauffeur would sit quietly on the podium behind the professor night after night, listening to his boss's lectures at prestigious universities throughout the United States. And after, after several months on tour, the chauffeur became concerned as he saw his boss begin to show signs of fatigue and uh, even beginning to get, uh, lose his voice. And so the driver approached this brilliant philosopher one day and asked if he could actually switch roles with him for that evening's lecture. And the driver put it to him this way, Sir, I've listened to you give the same lecture over a hundred times. I've got it memorized. Allow me to stand in for you tonight. Well, the professor pondered this suggestion and he finally agreed to the arrangement. So that night, the two men indeed switched roles. The professor dressed as a chauffeur, sat in a chair behind the podium, and his chauffeur took his place behind the lectern before a packed out audience of philosophy students and faculty, and the chauffeur handled himself brilliantly. He gave an astonishing performance, and the audience was absolutely mesmerized. But then something happened that had never happened in the history of this lecture circuit. A philosophy student stood up and asked a question. It took the student about a minute to even ask the question. And when the philosophy student finally sat down, all eyes in the crowded hall swung back to the fake professor. And of course, the real professor was mortified. But he dare not intervene and therefore expose the hoax. The chauffeur, however, not skipping a beat, chided the poor philosophy student, saying, Young man, I am surprised that a student... Of a philosophy, at a school of philosophy as, as prestigious as this would ask such a simplistic question. In all my years of teaching and lecturing, I have never heard anyone ask such a simplistic question and a rhetorical question at that. And to prove to you that this is in fact such a simple question, I'm going to invite my chauffeur to come up to the mic <laughs> and he's going to answer it for you. Yes. I love that. Um, I am not going to be, uh, I'm not posing as a brilliant philosophy teacher. Um, I am going to basically uh, fake it with you. I'll pretend to be one. But if you'll bear with me, uh, this is going to be, uh, if you've had philosophy in college, even in high school, you'll find this intriguing. If not, I hope you, you will anyway. Um, but because something has grown in terms of fascination for me, and it's, it's the relationship between reason, scientific reason, and faith. And Christians have often been accused of always appealing to the God of the gaps when it comes to explaining certain phenomena in the world. If we can't explain how something works or where it comes from, we simply say, God did it. And it is our default position, and certainly not wrong to go there because we believe that we live and move and have our being in this world and that there is a God and he is not distant, but he is deeply involved. But we're viewed as sometimes as Christians checking our brains at the door that we don't actually want to or have need to pursue intellectual studies of philosophy and ethics and morality and theology. Therefore, we can sometimes view science and faith as, um, as enemies, or excuse me, science is the enemy of faith. So as a Christian, here's the danger. The danger is becoming very dualistic in our thinking. 
And it's as though we live in the land of two truths. And we know that that's an oxymoron. But it's almost as if we live according to that. That there's one truth that we hear in church and that we read in the scriptures. And then there's another truth that we read about in the newspaper or we read on a blog or we get in textbooks or we hear in the college or high school classroom. We see it online. We hear it on television. And the question is this morning, is belief in God and in the scientific method incompatible? Well, there are those who are very vocal about their belief that, yes, indeed, they are incompatible and should not be brought up in the same discussion. One of those individuals is an individual by the name of Sam Harris. If you know Sam, he's written a couple of books. He's, he's listed among a couple of men who are, who are termed the new atheist, which is really not new. It's just redressed and marketed differently. But he, along with men like Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and Christopher Hitchens, if you've read any of their books which I recommend you do, if nothing else, just to help you understand how an, a, an, a strong atheistic worldview perceives the life in general. But Sam Harris says this about, basically about the, what science contributes to the world. He says, given that the well-being of humans and animals must depend on states of the world and on states of their brains, and science represents our most systematic means of understanding these states, science can potentially help us avoid the worst possible misery for everyone. Now, if you have a worldview that discounts God, takes him out of the picture entirely, you obviously have to replace it with something else. And so in his view, he recognizes that there are, there's misery in this life. If he didn't, then nobody would read him. Everybody understands that there's problems. But he says that eventually, given enough time, the scientific method will help us avoid the worst possible misery that there is. And in fact, what he blames a lot of the misery on in this life is religion. Because in his next quote at the bottom, he says, one of the most perverse misuses of intelligence we have devised, he's referring to religion. It's one of the most perverse misuses of intelligence. He's speaking about us. So he's basically saying you have to make a choice. You either believe in the empirical method, scientific, repeatable, observable, or you believe in faith. And there is absolutely no reasonable reason to believe or base your life on faith. Well, he believes a lot like a predecessor of his, which I would call an old atheist, which was Karl Marx. He believed that religious, religious people or religious belief is like opium. He called religion the opiate of the masses. It's a drug that helps people, at least in his day, cope with the pain of the class struggle, the pain of just living life, that all religions are man-made, and that religious faith is a direct threat to the survival of civilization itself. If mankind is to truly progress, we have to discard such myths and legends as faith, religious belief, and adopt a more enlightened approach to spirituality and ethics. We have a word for that. It's called humanism. Man is the measure of all things. We are able to think our way through all of our miseries. And uh, what, what lies ahead at the end, who knows? Nobody really knows, they think. But humanism, that's what they're talking about here. So I have a choice, is basically what they're saying, of either trusting my pastor or my professor. There's a line there. And they're two exclusive individuals. They operate in two completely different worlds. And one uses his mind and the other doesn't. So this is an extremely, in my opinion, frustrating way to live, especially in our attempts to communicate the message of the gospel. Because we live in a culture where Christian assumptions are no longer taken for granted. We can no longer assume that the majority of people believe there is a God. And if they do believe there is a God, they don't believe that he's personal. 
that he can be known, that he, he became known, he, he initiated relationship with us. We can't take it for granted that we believe, people understand that Jesus Christ is God, that he came into the world. He took our place. He, he, he replaced us on the cross, an instrument of execution, in order that we might have life, that our sins could be judged for all time. We can't assume those things anymore. And yet there can't be two truths. If we look at some of the major religions of the world, we look at Islam, we look at Buddhism, we look at Hinduism, we look at Judaism, all these religions, they all believe something about Jesus Christ. But the, the fact of the matter is they can't all be right. Somebody's wrong. Um, in fact, many people are wrong. Who's right? That's where we have to apply reason and our minds to engage the culture and get them to think critically about what the truth actually is. So my main point this morning is that Christianity and reason are not enemies, nor are they exclusive. And I think in our present culture, some would call it post-Christian, post-modern, we have got to begin thinking critically. We have got to begin applying reason to our faith and begin to give arguments that, are, that make sense because there is logic to it. So being made in the image of God means we have the ability to think We have the ability to reason, discern, reflect, and to make assumptions based on what we observe in the world around us. And we are observant. Don't you like watching people go to the airport? You got time on your hands? What do you do? I wonder where they're coming from. I don't like what they're wearing. I would never go out in public like that. We're so critical. But we don't have to sacrifice faith on the altar of reason, as some suggest. And I'll demonstrate this morning... Um, I'll demonstrate this this morning by giving you one evidence for the existence of God based on what has been called the moral argument. So let's begin by looking at the first letter of John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John 3.16. We know John 3.16, but this is in the first letter of John that he wrote later. And he writes this, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay our lives down lay down our lives for our brothers. Now, there's a word in there that is critical. I've highlighted four of them, but the one that I'm really focusing in on today is ought. Now, I'm also operating off the assumption that as a church, you believe that every word of God is inspired, God-breathed. Therefore, words are important. God put the words together through the men that wrote in the way that he wished to communicate his message. So if we look at the word ought, which I want to camp out on for a little while... It's one of the most, one of the most, the 3,000 most common words in the English language. One author I read recently cites the very existence of words in our language, like ought and should, as evidence that there is an ultimate universal moral standard, thus implying that there is a moral giver and that there is such a thing as ultimate justice. And I hope to explain that to you. The first way I'd like to explain that is the fact that we live or inhabit two worlds. We live in the world of the way things are, and we live in a world of the way things ought to be. And we are moral beings who recognize that just as there are natural laws that govern the natural universe that we observe through our senses and we experiment with through repetition, for instance, if I take my keys and I drop them, well, what's going to happen if I let go? You all agree they're going to fall? Okay. Wow. Brilliant. We have a group of scientific, you know, empirical people here. You know that's going to happen. You could do it a thousand times. It's going to fall. 
That's what we talk about in terms of natural law. Over and over again, the same thing happens. You drop it, it falls. You drop it, it falls. We know that there are certain laws that govern the physical, natural universe. But there's also moral laws. There's also laws that govern the behavior of us, which is God's crown jewel, the height of his creation, his, those who bear his image. If I take these same keys, and I take my little sharp mailbox key, and I go out to the parking lot after the service, and I find a nice new car, and I take this thing, and I just casually walk along and run this along the paint job. And then at the end, I said, smile, God loves you. <laughs> well, you'd be asking me for my insurance information, because I ought not to do that. It's not right. You shouldn't do that to people's possessions. You shouldn't destroy their property. Why? That's a good philosophical question. Why not? So there are moral principles. There are natural law principles, and we operate off of both of those. Let's look at the way things are. The way things are, this is the domain of facts, what we observe all around us every day. And science is about discovering or researching the way things are and not the way things ought to be. A good example is what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico with this constant spill that they're trying to plug. Well, what do you th- who do you think they're asking? Do you think they're asking theologians? No, they're asking physicists, the scientific community, how do we cap this leak? so we don't continue to have this, this, this ecological disaster on our hands. That is the world of facts, trying to figure out how to deal with physical law, pressure. They were, they were going to apply some mud and, and force pressure back into the pipe. I don't understand that world, but it's part of our world. There's the other part, which is the way things ought to be, and this is the domain or domain of values. And we are moved, and we live according to values. We live according to quality. Um, the, expect- the expectation that we- there is hope, there is something better. There is something to anticipate. We-, we live for love. We live for hope. We live for beauty. We live for peace and kindness, acts of sacrifice, healing, justice, comfort, security. We live in the United States which with, with our national obsession being, how do I find happiness? Oh, my goodness. We are overwhelmed with that, and yet we continue to come up short, do we not? Because the, 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 the country that is the most affluent and the most, has most material possessions and the biggest consumer on the planet, we are still no better off in terms of happiness. It is elusive. But yet we still strive, do we not? When we had that 90-degree day just a few days ago, I noticed all these HVAC vans pulling up onto my street because everybody's air conditioners were out. They figured out they needed to get some work done on them. We want comfort, do we not? We, we enjoy comfort. We believe there's a place where I should be able to live where I'm, my needs are met and I'm, I feel good and I'm comfortable and I'm happy and, and healthy. Well, what is that part of us supposed to point us to? That moral part of us that says things ought not to be this way. There's values that I, that I hold on to. Even in the midst of my stuff, I believe there's a better way. Well, some people have attempted, they actually recognize this, atheists, who recognize that there is something about the injustice of the world that really points to the fact that maybe there's, a, there's, there's, something, about, there, there's something about this cosmic justice that at the end, that there's going to be all the rights are going to be, or wrongs are going to be made right. And one of those individuals, maybe you've heard of him, is Bertrand Russell. He was a British philosopher. He was an atheist. He lived into his 90s. And by the way, that's like a poster for don't smoke a pipe poor guy. 
Um, but he wrote toward the end of his life, actually in 1957, he wrote an article called Why I Am Not a Christian, which I recommend you read. And he acknowledged the fact about the present state of the world that uh, it does not move us. But what moves us, he says, which I'll read to you here, is the hope of, of final and complete justice. Let me read this. It's rather lengthy, but I think it's important. There is another very curious form of moral argument, which is this. They say that the existence of God is required in order to bring justice into the world. In the part of this universe that we know, there is great injustice. And often the good suffer, and often the wicked prosper, and one hardly knows which of those is the more annoying. But if you're going to have justice in the universe as a whole, you have to suppose a future life to redress the balance of life here on earth. That is a very curious argument. If you looked at the matter from a scientific point of view, you would say, after all, I know only this world. I do not know about the rest of the universe. But so far as one can argue at all on probabilities, one would say that probably this world is a fair sample. And if there is injustice here, the odds are that there is injustice elsewhere also. Supposing you got a crate of oranges that you opened, and you found all the top layer of oranges bad. You would not argue the underneath ones must be good, so as to redress the balance. You would say, probably the whole lot is is a bad consignment. And that is really what a scientific person would argue about the universe. He would say, here we find in this world a great deal of injustice. So as so far as that goes, that is a reason for supposing that justice does not rule in the world rule in the world, and therefore, so far as it goes, affords a moral argument against deity and not in favor of one. Of course, I know that the sort of intellectual arguments that I have been talking to you about are not what really moves people. What really moves people to believe in God is not an intellectual argument at all. Most people believe in God because they have been taught from early infancy to do it, and that is the main reason. You see that duality there? Science and faith. You cannot possibly believe that there's an afterlife. Why? Because all we can do, all we can gather and is about what we can observe. And we observe that this life is injustice, so if there's something beyond this, it's also unjust. Because that's all we got to go on. But he acknowledges it that, that just that fact doesn't move us. Does that give hope? Does that give, does that give courage? Does that, does that compel us or motivate us to, to, to live differently? This is the way it is. This is the way it's always going to be. Not to me. So Russell, an atheist, he acknowledged the injustice in this world. Again, he would, be, he would be in denial if he didn't. But because his worldview does not presuppose a God who will ultimately judge all injustice, he has to come up with a logical, logical, logical explanation for belief in a deity. He has to do an end run on God. So I've got to come up with a way I observe this, I observe this. And this is the way it is. This is the way it's always going to be. So, what is, what it will always be. Besides, if there were a deity, and this is another argument against the, the Christian faith, wouldn't that deity rectify all injustice now? Because if God is love, love means I act if I see a problem. Especially if it's someone that I love. I will act. I will do something. Where is he? Where is God, and why is he silent if he exists at all? And he also believes, Bertrand Russell, that belief in God is based solely on childlike faith, which is actually interesting that he says that. Who else has said that before? You know, whoever comes to the kingdom must become like a little child. 
He understands that there's a certain innocence, but, he also, but he's implying that you're just an idiot if you believe that there's more to this life beyond what is observable. So though, and, and there's another gentleman I wanted to briefly quote from. His name is Vaclav Havel. He, he was actually, for one, at one point, the president of Czechoslovakia. He's not a believer. He's an atheist, but he, he's also a playwright. But he gets it, even though his conclusion is wrong. He says, if God is gone from the universe, if we are really on our own, then we no longer have access to words like accountability and responsibility. Isn't that interesting? And he's coming to that conclusion based on the scientific method, reason, observation. If we're not going to stand before someone who ultimately sets the magnetic north on the compass of morality, what's the point? If there's no accountability, if there's no standard of righteousness, if there's no standard of right, why are we doing what we're doing? Why ought I be different? Why should I behave? Why should I live differently? He gets it. But unfortunately, he still lives in a world where God is not part of his view. Whenever we use words like should or ought, and we use them quite a bit, we recognize that there's some ideal or standard to which we believe is attainable or, at the very least, desirable. Ought or should are statements of value. They're statements of quality. They're words we use to expose our innate sense of how life should be and how people should behave or should be treated. In fact, if you look at this statement, fill in the blank. If you have children, you use this statement quite often. You shouldn't do this. You shouldn't fill that in. Why shouldn't we? Why ought we not? Who sets the ought? Who sets the should? Well, they're value statements, and it implies that there's a better way to live. But as, and when you get into the realm of philosophy, you ask yourself the question, why? Why should I live this way? Well, evolution has its own answer to this. And when I talk about evolution, I'm talking about all things originating from a common ancestor. I love that picture, don't you? That's, that's, you have days like that? You're working so hard to move, to get upstream, and then you end up in the bear's mouth. But evolution, the fact, the belief that there is, we all living things originated from a common ancestor as a result of time and chance and no supervision. That's what I'm talking about when I mean evolution. Evolution has its own explanation for why we are selfish animals, committed to our own survival by thinning the weak or sickly from the herd. But here's the problem. It faces immense challenges in accounting for why we at the same time hold that we ought not to be selfish. How can you do both? If we are the result of chemicals, time, chance, and no supervision, how can you do both? You cannot have both worlds. Evolution is trying to explain how we even got here in the first place, but they can't explain why we're here. Who would, what's driving life? What moves life to reproduce, to survive? What's the, what's the motivation? Why, are we, why is life moving forward? Why does life desire to survive? And here's the, here's the difference. Evolution is descriptive. It basically tells us its theories about why we do things. Evolutionary scientists are working very hard to figure out why we love. They're trying to figure out what are the biological, chemical, neurological processes that cause us to feel love and to want to love and to be loved. They're going to reduce it to chemicals. They're going to reduce it to physical function. How does that do? What does that do for you? Well... It's descriptive. That's all it can do is try to describe what's happening. Morality, however, is prescriptive. 
In other words, it says this is how we should do things. And that's where evolution gets left behind. Why we do what we do. What are the motivations? What is that part of us that cannot be surgically removed that continues to draw us into relationship? What is love? What is joy? Where did that come from? How did that evolve? But the truth is, we are flawed, selfish creatures who act, or at least intuitively know that we shouldn't be. Even the, the diehard atheist. Don't we, are, aren't we continually seeking to improve? Are we seeking to be better? To love better? To serve? Don't we value altruism? Don't we value self-sacrifice? Heroism? Charity? In fact, tomorrow we're recognizing our veterans. Why? Why would we spend a, a whole day honoring those men and women who have served in uniform? It's because it's a value statement. We value those who have been willing to put themselves in harm's way for the sake of our freedom. By the way, if you have served in the military or you are, you are retired active duty or reserves or you have someone in your family who is military, would you just stand, please? I just thought we would recognize you while we're discussing this. I'd just like to say thank you. So you, you meet my need for safety, just knowing you're here. Thank you. But we honor you, and uh, we are grateful for your sacrifice. But where does that intuitive sense of honor come from? Why do we give medals of valor? Where does that come from? Because we understand, even as selfish and, and committed to our own survival as we are, that we value selflessness. We value laying down lives for the sake of another. So why do we continue to operate as if there's a better world, a higher standard, a right way to live and to love? Why? Well, here it is. You ready for this? The best explanation? That there is such a world. How's that for profound? (laughs) We operate that way now because we live with the great expectation and hope that there is such a place. Let me give you an example. This is a screensaver. You have screensavers that remind you of the most miserable sad, depressing time of your life? I imagine that this is the way my lawn is going to look someday. And this is the amount of property I'm going to own in Hawaii. And some of you have been to some beautiful places in our world, and you take, back, you take photos and you stick them on your screensaver. Or you like classic cars, so you put that on there. Or you like puppies, you put that on there. Everybody, or sports. Whatever it is, you put on your screensaver. Screensavers are really an, an, a, a evidence, if you will, of the fact that we are looking for that reality that we have not yet tasted yet, but we believe is out there. I want to live in that picture right there. I don't know what the temperature is, but I can make that up in my mind. I can fill in the blanks, and so can you. I've never been to Hawaii. I'd love to be there, but I've heard it's paradise. But whatever it is in our minds, we have screensavers that look at tropical beaches, beautiful waterfalls, mountaintops, Machu Picchu, whatever you want. We have these beautiful scenery this, this, because that's where we believe we want to be. That's where we want to live. We believe that someday we're going to step on that sod. And we're going to feel that cool grass under our bare feet. And there's going to be no signs and no dog poop. It's all going to be perfect. <laughs> Dogs in my neighborhood. <laughs> anyway, let's go back to Scripture. Let, let me salvage this. Um, we expect Scripture, don't we, to be full of statements of, about how we ought to live, how we should live. And, of course, 
uh, we do see that. And, and the standard of righteousness, righteous living is a no less than God himself. And if we see some of these passages here, Peter, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. See, we start with that. The measure of righteousness is not you. It's not me. It's not your pastors. It's, it's God. That's the measure by which he will judge. And when we stand before him, he's either going to see us as the righteousness of Christ or he's going to see us without the righteousness of Christ, dead in our sins. And he'll judge accordingly. Romans 5.1, we who are strong, there's the word, ought to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now that flies right in the face of natural selection. Survival of the fittest. What are we supposed to do with the weak? Yeah, some people believe we should dump them. You know, we believe that it's a waste of time. Hitler used to call the infirmed and the elderly useless eaters. They just took up. They just consumed. Why are they alive? They have no right. See, if we're truly committed to an evolutionary point of view or theory, we should believe that the only way that we're going to survive is to look out for ourselves. We don't care about the widows and orphans. But isn't it interesting that the true measure of godliness that we see throughout Scripture is just that? It's, it's countercultural. It's looking out for those who can't help themselves. It's not trying to thin the herd. Chapter, Ephesians chapter 5, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Husbands, why ought you? I remember when my wife and I had a knockdown, drag out argument, and I spent the night on the couch. I actually have a couch story, I really do. It was a cheap couch, too, so my back paid the price. <laughs> Stubborn heart went with my broken back. That I thought that as I was laying there that night, I thought, I ought not to be here. <laughs> oh, maybe God's trying to speak to me. Hello? I'm a little thick that way, but he finally got through to me. But I ought not to treat her that way. I ought to give my life. I ought to be willing to sacrifice, to do whatever it takes to honor her and to, and to present her before God as holy and blameless. So outside a theistic worldview, does anyone have a good, enlightened, logical basis for behaving ethically? Well, again, when you take God out of the formula, you have to replace him. And we often do. Darwinistic evolutionists would argue that humans exhibit selfless, even life-threatening acts of sacrifice, like, for instance, a mom running into her burning home to save her children who were still in there, in order to ensure that her children who share her DNA make it into future generations. That's a naturalistic explanation. Now, does that move you? She did it because she's got the same, she shares 50% of the DNA with her children. How powerful is that? Richard Dawkins calls this the selfish gene. He wrote a whole book on it. There's our friend right there. If you remove God from the equation, then you have to come up with a scientific, naturalistic, non-theistic explanation for acts of selflessness. This is science's version of God of the gaps. So if anyone ever comes and tells you that Christians use God cock all the time, they're just squirting that into the holes because they can't figure it out and they're too stupid to know. Well, what 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 are the atheists doing? They're using God call. How does Richard Dawkins believe life began on this world? Aliens. He's a scientist. Then there's the cosmic justice point of view. The maxim that a person reaps what he has sown, or the the word that's very popular today is karma. 
uh, a belief in divine retribution. These are all different expressions of a common principle that the world is governed by justice. In fact, another atheist named by, by a guy by the name of Reginald Mitchell, he wrote in, a, in an article called Cosmic Justice this very thing. Few subjects have given rise to more talk, more trouble, more fighting than justice. And there is no easier occupation for one who has a small scattering of mind and intelligence and a certain amount of observation than that of denouncing the injustice in life. Many have been led to the conclusion that there really is no such thing as justice. Yet, how could we object to injustice if we didn't have inside of us, behind the mind, a conviction that there is justice in life? He's talking about the soul. He's talking about the part of us that was built for relationship with God and one another. So don't we all have a belief or feeling that each human being has some natural individual right which ought not to be violated? We may take it as fact then that there is in nature and in man a principle of justice and that law and order are differing different ways of expressing the rightness of things. This is an atheist. He gets it. He just like the, Mr. Vaclav. He says that if, there's, if we know of what is injustice, doesn't that imply by argument that there's something that's called justice? But who sets the bar? Where's the moral giver? Who's the standard? Here's another argument for this whole idea of basing the belief in God on reason and intellect and observation. By far the majority of the people who have ever populated this planet have had a belief in a deity of some type. If you look at some of the major world religions, think about um, Hinduism, okay? If you are selfish and greedy in this life, chances are you're going to come back as a roach or something lesser, maybe a rock. If you are a Buddhist, it's the somewhat of the same cycles of life and death. Taoism has a quote, those who wrongfully kill men are only putting their weapons into the hands of others who will in turn kill them. Christianity has a belief that there is going to be a last judgment where all men and women all ages will stand before the king and will give an account. Islam has in one of its surahs, it says, you shall surely be paid in full your wages on the day of resurrection. All of these doctrines, believed by billions of people who have habitated this planet over, this, over the millennium, life after death is not a mere continuation of earthly existence, but rather a different kind of existence, and there is some form of settling of earthly accounts. These doctrines hold true, or excuse me, these doctrines hold that even though we don't always find justice on this earth, there is ultimate justice, and in this future accounting, what goes around does indeed come around. Um, We recognize that there is no ultimate goodness and justice. Our atheist friends have already written that. However, don't we hold tenaciously to these ideals, even the atheist, that somehow the wrongs will be made right? We live as though there is a moral law to which we're ultimately accountable and that the, those who get away with it really do not in the end. In fact, if you look at this newspaper article, this was a, a, a girl, 12-year-old, this, uh, murdered recently. This was in the paper just Wednesday. Her name is Kaylee Wilson. And at the funeral, as the pastor, her pastor was eulogizing her, that part that's circled, he makes, he makes a, a statement regarding this ultimate cosmic justice. He says, that person the murderer, will one day stand before God and he will avenge her death. Now, we say a lot of things. I've done a lot of funerals. When you stand there, you can say a lot of things about people. You usually don't say anything disparaging. You tend to highlight their accomplishments and their goodness and their character. But this is one of those statements at a funeral that I agree with. If if This man or woman, whoever was the murderer, may never be caught. Is there ultimate justice? Will rights be wronged? 
or wrongs be right, rather? Yes, I believe that with all my heart because we live in a society where even though there is total injustice, we hold tenaciously to the fact that we should be just. We should live lives that are pleasing, that are good, that care for people. We keep driving in that direction. So let me finish by making something absolutely clear because there's a lot of religions out there that teach that uh, ultimate justice, karma, whatever it may be. But what makes Christianity stand alone is the fact, and make no mistake, that is, is the cross. It's this. Why is the, the symbol for Christianity a symbol or a device that was used to, to torture and, and execute? Well, the reason that this is significant is because it was where all injustice was judged once for all. You see, when I am treated poorly, when somebody keys my car, when somebody insults me to my face or behind me, what do I do with that? If I decide to become bitter, if I decide to not forgive, if I decide to let that eat me alive, what I have done is I have just voided this. I have just said that you did not judge what was just done to me. It was not sufficient. I will live with this bitterness and with an attitude of vengeance, and I will let it eat me inside. Now, if I've done something that has caused others to hurt, or if my actions have caused another to treat me a certain I have to take care of what I am responsible for, obviously. I have to make it right. I have to offer forgiveness. I have to humble myself. But Christianity is far away from the pack because it dealt with this issue of injustice. It dealt with humanity's inhumanity. It dealt with the fact that we are selfish. We are looking out for ourselves. And when you have a blameless man who takes the blame of the world on his shoulders and cries out in agony and experiences separation from the Father temporarily, we, 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 whenever we are offended, we have to go back to the cross and say, you understand. I do not have a God who cannot sympathize with my weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all ways just as I am, but without sin. He understands my pain. And he desires my soul to cry out to him in such a way that I become more dependent on him, not less. It's interesting that Jesus was crucified not because of what he did, but who he claimed to be. I always find that interesting. If, you walk, if, you, if George walked around claiming to be God, would you arrest him? No, you'd lock him up. Sorry, George. <laughs> These guys, these nuts. He's just spending way too much time in the sun. you got to put him somewhere where he can be helped. But don't arrest him and kill the man. But that's what our Savior was accused of and was killed for that. So, reason. Let me conclude with this. Reason. The ability to think. Making assumptions about the world based on observations about the way the world appears to work. The demand for justice. The use of words, the words ought and should how the world religions have all been so focused on cosmic ultimate justice. All of these things are detectable to image bearers, who we are. We bear the image of God. We can detect it. We can pick it up with our radar. The question is, will it lead us to the cross? See, when we're discussing the Christian faith with people, we sometimes forget that we have good reason to believe of the hope in us. That's part of giving a defense. Is saying, do you ever look at the injustice? around us. In fact, if you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your door, the first thing they talk about is, do you believe there's going to be ultimate justice? Ask them. Look at, their, look at their brochures. They have people living in this utopia. They have a screensaver. And that's how they appeal. Do you believe that somehow all the wrongs are going to be righted? That's exactly where they're going with it. Except they miss the whole point about Jesus. Which is the whole point. So it's no accident 
by the way, in the second, or the, the second to last chapter of the Bible, we read with great hope, um, Revelation 21, 4, that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And if you feel like your screensaver is what you're living for, you don't have a clue. Heaven is beyond anything I can even imagine. It's, I used to think of it as one long church service with a really bad preacher and hard benches <laughs> and no covered dish supper afterwards like good Baptist I was years ago. That's not it. We have no idea because we live for hope. We live for relationship. We live for love. God and us together forever. We can't even begin to fathom that. So take your screensavers, enjoy them as I enjoy mine, but don't let that deceive you. It's not about having a sandy beach, white shores. Certainly, I'm hoping that there might be a part of that. I'm hoping we get to eat. Um, But don't forget that what we were built for, what moves us, is not knowing these facts. It's, It's relating to the one who has given them to us. And, and lastly, one of my favorite quotes, this was another, this is an agnostic, Robert Jastrow. He's no longer with us, but he wrote this, in all honesty, for the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. <laughs> I love that. The theologians have already been up there. They've been having Bible studies. And so finally, you know, in our great intellect, we think we have reached the pinnacle of intelligence that's going to free us from all misery and all these problems and all the worry. Guys, we've been there. We're already on that rock. The rock is Christ. But he was honest enough to say, you know something? And I would have loved to have been there when he met the Savior for the first time. If he, in fact, had a decision to trust in Christ, wouldn't it be amazing that he stood there and said, I knew it. I knew it. You've been here all along, and there's something inside of me that has driven me towards you, and I felt it in all my studies as a physicist. How could you not see the signature of God in the study of science? All right. I'll pray because I keep going, right? George, George is going like this. No. <laughs> all right. Let's, let me go to prayer and thank God for the tremendous minds he's given us. Father, we are grateful that we did not check out uh, mentally when you saved us. The minds that you gave us at birth the minds that are capable of incredible things are the same mind that is now redeemed and has the ability to think thoughts after yours and the ability to look at the world through a different set of lenses, to look at it as one who is powerful, creative, omnipotent, beautiful, glorious. And may we continue to look around us and not be impressed with man-made structures, but be impressed with a God who even gave man the capability to make man-made structures. Thank you for the, the great minds of the faith Thank you for even the atheists who get it and point us to the fact that, you know, it's not just us who get it. They get it too, but they just have never bowed the knee to acknowledge their Lord and Savior. And I pray that they would, even some of these very um, aggressive atheists that write prolifically. May people's minds be enlightened to the truth, Father. And may it start with us. And in conversation, give us confidence to be able to share the hopes that's within us, not just because we know Bible verses, but because we know that there is order And we know there's a pattern and there's a rhythm and there's a longing in the soul for something that was not obtainable perfectly yet. Father, guide us and give us wisdom and conversations to your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. And I can't conclude, I always like to bring a, a, a rock hit of the 80s with me. And if you remember, remember Belinda Carlisle of the Go-Go's? Or no, the Bangles. Right, John? I don't know, he's not in. Um, she wrote this song, Heaven is a Place on Earth. 
bad theology, but, well, if, if there is a new heaven and new earth, but I thought it'd be kind of fun to just play it, um, John, as they leave. But thank you again. Um, love you guys. Appreciate you having me again. So. This is a place on earth. This is-